Welcome to week two of our study of Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. We want to thank you for listening to the Adult Spoil the Bible Weekly Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWaves Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCreary, your host, and today I'm being joined by Mike Livingston. Mike's one of the members of the Explore the Bible adult team, and he is the content editor for the personal study guide and for the commentary and the leader guide. So, Mike, thank you for being with us today. Glad to be here, Dwayne. Uh, we're looking at session two, as I mentioned earlier, of our fall 2021 study of Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. And today we're going to be examining Philippians chapter 1, verses 12 through 26. And we've entitled this session, Joy of Adversity. The main point here is that believers can face adversity in the joy of knowing the gospel is spread. These verses, 12 through 26, we've outlined with four key points. The first point is open doors. The second one is mission accomplished. The third one is God honored. And the fourth one is Christ alone. So let's look at these points from the outline. First of all, open doors, Philippians 1, 12 through 14. In these verses, we see Paul marveling at the response to the gospel as a result of him being in prison. He even notes that Roman guards were responding to the gospel and believers were gaining courage to share the gospel. The main idea here is that persecution for the gospel leads to opportunities to share the gospel. One item you may find helpful when you're teaching is pack item nine, which lists Paul's persecutions. It actually lists the way he persecuted the church prior to his conversion, then his conversion, and then ways he experienced persecution as well. So that'll give you some context for that first point where Paul is talking about the persecution he endured, in this case being in prison and how that opened the door to share the gospel. The second point, verses 15 through 18, is mission accomplished. Here, Paul realized that some were presenting the gospel in an effort to bring him harm, while others shared with pure motives. Paul was content, regardless of the motive, knowing that the gospel was shared either way. The main point for us is that faithful proclaimers of the gospel Keep their focus on its advance, not on personal slights or distractions. The third point is God-honored, and that's verses 19 and 20. Here, Paul expressed confidence in the prayers of the Philippians and in the Holy Spirit that he would not be ashamed of the gospel. Paul knew that either in life or death, God would be honored through him. The main point here is that believers honor God by being faithful to him in life and in death. The last point of the outline in verses 21 through 26, we see the idea of Christ alone. Here, Paul mused about the ramifications of him living and dying, pointing to the benefits of each. He expressed confidence in being freed from prison and remaining alive for the benefit of the Philippian believers, which would produce joy and encouragement for him. The main point here is the encouragement of other believers produces joy and purpose in the one who encourages. So those main points, again, were number one, open doors, verses 12 through 14, mission accomplished, verses 15 through 18, God honored, verses 19 through 20, and then Christ alone, verses 21 through 26. 
Paul raises the issue of motive when sharing the gospel to begin with, verses 15 through 18. Does motive really matter? Well, looking, um, looking up at, uh, going back up to verse 12 through 14, just to get some context, Paul has said that his imprisonment had given all the believers confidence to proclaim Christ boldly. All right, but there were some who were preaching with wrong motives. They were preaching out of envy and rivalry. They're uh, with, uh, out of selfish ambition. They weren't sincere. And they were thinking they could cause Paul trouble in his imprisonment, he said. Now, how Paul perceived their motives, we don't really know. Um, why they envied him in prison, we don't really know. Um, and why they thought that this would cause him trouble, um, you know, we don't really know. There's, so there's, there's a lot. It seems kind of twisted, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. It does seem that way. So there's a lot we don't know about uh, everything going on here. But what we do know, <clears throat> other than that their motives were wrong and selfish, we know that. What we also know is that they were preaching Christ. And Paul says it three times. He says it in verse 15, they preach Christ. In verse 17, proclaim Christ. In verse 18, Christ is proclaimed. Three times he says they're preaching Christ. So the significance of that, of him saying it three times, mm -hmm. yeah, and that is significant, I think. Isn't it? Yeah, I think so too. So in spite of everything else he says about them and their motives, he, he affirms they're, they're proclaiming Christ. And, and for that, he, he can rejoice. They, so they're not like the, the Judaizers in, you know, in Galatians. We talked in Galatians about the Judaizers preaching a different gospel who, who want to distort the gospel. They, these, these people are not like that. They're not distorting the message. Their message was sound, even if their motives were not. So to your question, does it, does it matter? Uh, if our motives are, are wrong? Well, yes and no. <laughs> yes and no. Yes, motives matter to God. According to scripture, motives matter to God. I mean, uh, you know, I can point you to some passages, you know, in Proverbs 16, 2, it says, all a person's ways seem right to him, but the Lord weighs motives. Um, the other translation says, the Lord evaluates or examines motives. So yeah, they matter. Or, or think about James chapter four, verse three. You ask and don't receive because you ask with the wrong motives. Spend it on your pleasure. So wrong motives can hinder our prayers. And um, uh, Jesus spoke to the issue of motives when he said, be careful not to practice your righteousness in front of others to be seen by them. That's, that's getting at motive. Um, so it's always important to do the right things for the right reasons. Um, the, the sense in which motives don't matter, the sense in which they don't matter, is that the power of the gospel and the power of his word doesn't depend on the character of the preacher or the teacher of the gospel. And that's the point that needs to be made. That's the point that needs to come out of, of this. That we be thankful for that, too. We, we should be glad that our our wrong motives don't completely hinder the reception of the truth that we teach or the truth we preach. We, we, yeah, we should be thankful for that, that the power of God's word is from God and not from us, uh, that, that God can use imperfect people to accomplish his purposes. Uh, so, yeah, so in that sense, motives don't, don't matter. But in another sense, they do because God looks at, at the heart. 
and, and examine some of those. In the middle of this passage, this section, verses 12 through 26, we find verse 21, probably one of the more known verses uh, in Philippians, where to live is Christ, to die is gain. What are some practical ways of us to understand that term, to live is Christ? Uh, you know, it's actually, uh, verse 21 is actually continuing a thought that he's already, that he started earlier. Uh, in verse 20, verse 20, uh, he talks about how his hope was to bring honor to Christ, that his life would, would honor Christ, whether he lived or died. His, his hope was that he would honor Christ in, in life and in death. So verse 21, it actually, you know, it, it really continues that thought um, when he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Now, the, the first couple words of verse 21 there, um, for me, uh, is the words for me. Uh, is in Greek, it's, it, it's in an emphatic position, just the way it's constructed. There's, there's an emphasis right there on the words for me. Whatever else life means to other people, for me, it means Christ. You know, for some people, life means, practically speaking, life means, um, you know, fill in the blank. Life means money. Life means the stuff money can buy. Life means power. Life means having your way. Life means whatever. Fill in the blank. Being remembered. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Life can mean different things to different people. Paul says, for me, and I think for a believer, life means Jesus. So, so what does that mean? Practically speaking, you know, what, what does that mean? We, we can talk a lot about, or we do talk a lot about, compartment, compartmentalizing our lives. And a lot of us, you know, a lot of people do that. A lot of Christians do that. We divide our lives up into compartments. And there's, you know, our faith in Christ, that might be one compartment of our lives. Um, and that, that compartment may have little to do with the other compartments. To live, to say it, to live as Christ is to live an uncompartmentalized life. If, that, if that's even a word, I, I don't know. Uh, it means that every part of life is his. That, that, that we, we are not living a compartmentalized life. We're living a centered life. And everything, everything is centered on him. Um, there's a book, um, by an author named Kenneth Boa, uh, and the book is conformed to his image. Great, great book. Um, Bo and B-O-A or B-O-A, yeah, Boa. B-O-A. Yeah. Okay. Uh, conformed to his image is, is the book, R rather large, thick book. Um, uh, but he talks in there about how for many believers, Christ is present in their lives. He's present, right? But for others, he's not just present, he's prominent. He's prominent. You know, uh, so for those, you know, there are those who, for, Christ is present in their lives. And for, for many of those people, you know, Christianity is something you do on Sunday mornings. And it may have little impact on the rest of the week. And then for others, he's prominent, but there's still maybe areas where they want to be in control. They want to maintain control. Maybe it's over their finances. Maybe it's work. Maybe it's relationships. Maybe they don't trust him to, uh, with these other areas of life. But then there's a third group. Um, there are believers for whom Christ is preeminent. He's preeminent. He's, he's the hub of the wheel. And every spoke of, of life is connected to him and aligned to him. So Christ is not just a, a component of, of life. He's the center of life. I know that um, I'm sure that some 
who are listening um, to us are familiar with Warren Wearsby's little commentaries, <clears throat> you know, and, and, I, and I, I enjoy these too, and I, and I enjoy looking at them and reading them. There's a little commentary on uh, Philippians. <clears throat> he tells a story, uh, he talks about how when he and his wife would go shopping, he always dreaded going to the fabric department or going to the fabric department. <laughs> Um, and you know, I, I relate to that, <clears throat> but he would go because his wife just really loved looking at fabric. She loved it. But if on the way to the fabric store, <clears throat> he spots a, a bookstore, then, then he's like, he just suddenly comes alive. You know, he gets excited. He, he comes alive, you know, in the book uh, store or the book section of the store. And, and he says, he makes the point that the thing that excites us the thing that motivates us is really the thing that, that life is to us. So in Paul's case, Jesus excited him. Jesus made his life worth living, gave direction to his life. Christ was his life. So, you know, to say to live is Christ, it means that we're more motivated by the things that he says are important than the things the world says are, are important. Or we find our joy in him instead of in our circumstances, or we, we look to him to meet our needs instead of looking to the world to meet our needs. It, mean, it, it, it means all of these things. And all of those are things we'll be looking at as yeah. we work through Philippians. Yeah. This dying and living discussion uh, that Paul has here almost sounds like Paul desired death more than he did life. How do we address this issue with our groups when we're looking at this passage? Yeah. <clears throat> yeah, Paul said, I, I long to depart and to be with Christ. That's far better, he said. Um, <clears throat> what he really longed for was, was more of Christ. That's, that's what he wanted, more of Christ. So he, this, is not, uh, th this was not the sentiment of someone who was unhappy with life. And that, that's what we, you know, we got to, you know, understand that and see that and, and make that point. That this was not someone who was dissatisfied with his life. And so he wanted an escape. That's, that's not it at all. It's not someone wanting his life to end. Um, or it's not a death wish, you know, we, we should say. But, but Paul knew that being in the presence of Christ, Oh, that's better than anything here. I mean, he, you know, he knew that and he knew that death would give him more of Christ. And, and that's what he wanted. That's more of Christ is what he wanted. But at the same time, Paul knew the needs of others, the needs of others in, in the churches outweighed his desire to be with Christ in Christ's presence immediately. So he, he knew he wasn't finished here. I mean, he, he knew he wasn't finished there here. Was, there was a lot of more work that happened after this time in Paul's life. Yeah, yeah this was not the end of his life. And, and he, I, you, you get the feeling reading this that he, he understood that. And he had a whole lot to live for. Um, he, knew, and he knew that the timing and the manner of which he would, you know, leave this life and be ushered into the presence of Jesus. He knew all that was in God's hands anyway. He knew that was not that he even had a say in that matter when it was going to happen. He, you know, he, he knew he didn't. That, that's in God's hands. But he, he's saying that as long as he's here, he's going to work for Jesus. He's going to work for Jesus until God says it's time to, to go, until God brings him home. 
you know. So, so the, the key point I think is he, he's he's not saying I, I want out of this life. I want to escape from this. You know, and he, you know, he could have said that in prison, right? I mean, a lot of people in prison might you know have that feeling, but that's not what he's saying. He, he's he's saying I know that being in, in the presence of Jesus, that's the best thing that there yeah, there'd ever be. But while I'm here, I'm totally focused and content to do what God has called me to do. One thing I would point out here is the Bible skill. The Bible skill for this session encourages us to look at this text, verses 12 through 26, and identify the personal pronouns here that are used by Paul. I, me, and my. They're, uh, it's used pretty throughout the, the passage. It's a very personal statement that he's making here. And the point of that Bible skill is for us to think about the emotions that the Philippians may have felt about the personal nature of Paul's words here, how they would have understood it. It'd be a great way to end the lesson for them, for you to point to the Bible skill. You've already worked through uh, the four main points of, of the open doors, the mission accomplished, the God honored, and the Christ alone. And then when you finish looking at verses 21 through 26, then do the Bible skill as a way to kind of tie up everything. It's a good way to review the lesson and then move into that, that challenge, that summarizing challenge step in the, the leader guide. We want to thank you for listening with us today. Mike, thank you for being with us today. Thank you. Uh, from time to time in the podcast, we mentioned different resources in the Explore the Bible family, the leader pack, the adult commentary, quick source, to name a few. You can find out more about all the Explore the Bible resources on our website at goexplorethebible.com. Thank you for listening to us this week, and we hope you'll join us next week. We'll be looking at session three. Bill Craig will be joining me. We'll be looking at Philippians 2, 1 through 15, and the idea of joy through humility. All right. This is session four. Thank you for listening to the Adult Explore the Bible Leader Training Podcast. This podcast is designed to help teachers prepare to lead a Bible study group using LifeWay's Explore the Bible adult resources. Each week, we review the Bible passage for that week's study, examine some questions teachers may face, and give some teaching tips along the way. I'm Dwayne McCreary, your host, and I'm being joined once again this week by Mike Livingston. Mike is one of the members of the Adult Explore the Bible team. So, Mike, thank you for being with us again today. I believe you were with us a couple weeks ago, weren't you? Weeks ago, yeah. Good to be back. Today, we're looking at session four, uh, which is an examination of Philippians 3, 8 through 21. The main point here is that joy, or the main point, the, the title of the session is Joy in Knowing Jesus. The summary statement for this passage or this study is believers gain joy through knowing Jesus and living in obedience to him. We've got four points in our outline. They are righteousness gained, sanctification begun, warning issued, and citizenship assured. That first point, righteousness gained, looks at verses 8 through 11 of Philippians 3. After describing his accomplishments prior to salvation, Paul then declared that none of those actions compared to knowing Christ. He points out that he was unable to obtain righteousness through those things, but now knew the joy of righteousness through faith in Jesus. Paul's goal was to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and identify with his sufferings, 
with a new view. Uh, Paul's goal was to know Christ, the power of his resurrection, and identify with his sufferings with a view to eternal life. The second point, verses 12 through 14, we've entitled Sanctification Begun. Paul reminded his readers in these verses that he and they needed to continue to move toward God's standards. He challenged them to press on, moving forward in their spiritual development. Verses 15 through 19, we find Paul warning those who were maturing to continue to do so, living by the same standard followed for their previous growth. He called on them to follow the example of Jesus and himself. He reminded his readers that some had rejected Christ and become enemies of Christ, leading them to destruction. The fourth section, verses 20 and 21, those verses which we entitled Citizenship Assured, Paul reminded the Philippian believers of their citizenship in heaven and of the transforming <clears throat> Paul reminded the Philippian believers of their citizenship in heaven and of the transformation awaiting them in heaven. So those points were righteousness gained, sanctification begun, warning issued, and citizenship assured. The main points of those four ideas, first of all, in righteousness gained, is that faith in Christ is the only way to gain a right standing before God. Sanctification begun, 12 through 14, the idea there is that faith in Christ opens the door for ongoing spiritual sanctification. The third point, warning issued, verses 15 through 19, the main point there is that believers must remain faithful in their commitment to Christ. And lastly, verses 20 through 21, citizenship assured. In these verses, the promise of heaven should motivate believers to remain faithful to Christ. Well, that's a quick look at the, at the passage, Mike. How do we deal with verse 11 and Paul assuming he would somehow reach the resurrection? Yeah, <clears throat> depending on your translation, the, yeah. the, reading, um, the, the CSB starts with the word assuming, assuming that I will somehow reach the, uh -huh. the resurrection. Other translations have something similar to that. We can say that there's no doubt that Paul was confident that he would reach the resurrection. Uh, he, he, he was confident. He didn't doubt the fact. Um, go down a few verses later in this passage, uh, in verse 21, where Paul says, he will transform the body of our humble condition into the likeness of his glorious body. I mean, that, that doesn't sound like someone who had doubts. He was confident that he had attained the, the, the resurrection. So how are we to understand verse 11 is, is, is the question. A uh, couple things, couple, uh, really two different ways of looking at it. And they're not, these are not mutually ex exclusive uh, ideas, but one is that Paul was expressing humility here in, in the way that he worded uh, this verse. It's just, an, it's a way of expressing his humility. And, and I found that many, I found many commentaries, many commentators uh, uh, with this view that uh, Paul didn't want to sound presumptuous because he knew that from beginning to end, Salvation is a gift of God. It's by God's grace completely. Um, and he, he knew that. He didn't want to sound presumptuous. So it's just, it's, an, it's a way of expressing his humility. Yeah. Uh, that, that's one way. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of commentaries who, who say that. Um, I can see that. I can see that being the, the emphasis yeah. there. Yeah. But there's another way of looking at it. And it doesn't exclude that first, you know, thing we just said. But the, another thing is that 
any any uncertainty on Paul's part, if there was any uncertainty on his part, it's, it's not that he would attain the resurrection, but it was about the events that would happen between his now and then. You know, it, it was his immediate future that he didn't know about. So what, what that means is he didn't know when or how um, the end would come for him. <clears throat> so he didn't know uh, if he was going to die in prison, if he didn't, he didn't know if the end would be by martyrdom or even if he would be alive when Jesus came back. He, you know, he had that expectation, you know, that Jesus could come back before, you know, I, I experienced death. He lived with that expectation too. He, he yeah. it, was, it was not like, I hope it happened. It's like, it, it, it's very yeah. possible. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so when you, so when you look at the verse, uh, when you look at it in the Greek, you know, the Greek construction and language, the first two words of the verse, um, the, the first word in, in Greek is the word tra often translated if it's a, uh, it, it's a word that introduces a conditional clause. And we, we usually start that with the word if, but there are different kinds of conditional clauses in Greek. And this is a conditional clause of expectation. And what that means that is that it's an expression of expectation and not doubt. So the way it's constructed is it, it, it says to us that Paul assumed this to be true. He's not doubting it will be true. He assumed it will be true. You look at the construction in, in the original language and you, it indicates that, that he's assuming the truth of, of this fact that he would attain the resurrection. And then there's that, the word that follows that little conditional if in Greek is a word that carry, can carry the meaning of somehow or by any means or in some way. And, and the King James uh, expresses it by with the translation by any means i think it is or that in the english standard version says by any means possible and there's one i think there's one translation that says one way or another you know that paul knew one way or another he's going to he's going to attain the resurrection so the question for him was he, he didn't know when or how that was going to happen but he he was confident that it was going to happen so it's just to place it in this in our discussion here, we we almost could could take the approach that if we wanted to translate it into our, our own vernacular, when somehow, and I don't know how, but when it happens, somehow I know it's going to happen. I'm not sure how it's going to happen, but when it happens, I'm going to attain the resurrection. That's that'd be a fair way of. Saying I think it. I think that's I think that's a, a fair way of, of expressing it. Yes. Okay. A call. Uh, Paul calls on his readers to imitate him. Question that's maybe asked here, shouldn't we be imitating Jesus? This seems like an arrogant statement to make, especially since we're talking about spiritual maturity and humility being one of the things that should growingly be demonstrated by us as believers. So how, how do we deal with that issue where Paul calls on his readers to imitate him? Yeah, and it's not, it's not just imitate him. Um, he does say, join in imitating me. He goes on to say, and pay careful attention to those who live according to the example you have in us. So he's calling on them to pay attention uh, to those who live according to the example you have in us. So in other words, um, you know, imitate Paul, yes, but there are others to imitate as well. Uh, there, are other, there were other believers who were setting the example not just Paul, but there were others who were also setting an example for them to follow. 
this is not an uncommon theme in Paul's letters. He said this more than once, imitate me. Uh, and one, maybe one of the key places, the key verses where he said uh, that is in 1 Corinthians 11, 1, where he says, imitate me as I also imitate Christ. And I think that's an important, um, an important verse to look at or think about as, as you try to understand what Paul is saying here. Paul could say, imitate me because he was imitating Christ. Jesus is the one we want to be like. So any, any, Christian, any Christian leader is worthy of imitating only to the extent that that person's life imitates Jesus. I mean, you know, sanctification, we talk about sanctification as God working in us to make us more like Christ, not, not to make us more like Paul, to make us more like Christ. So it wasn't arrogance on Paul, uh, Paul's part to say, imitate me. That's called discipling, really. You think about it. That's, that's what discipling is. Um, he taught, he, later in his life, uh, towards the end of his life, he, when he wrote uh, to Timothy, he told Timothy, don't let anyone look down on you because you're young, but set an example for the believers in speech and conduct and love and faith and purity. So whether you're young or old, you can set an example for other believers in the way you talk, in the way you conduct yourself, in, in, in how you love and your faith and your purity. We, we all are to be setting an example for others that, that others can follow. That's, that's a part of discipleship. That, that's the nature of, 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 of the call to be a disciple mm -hmm. is that we, you know, how, how else do you disciple someone without you showing them what it looks like? Right. Um, there is, I don't think there really is a, a, a true way to do it otherwise where you could say, let me, let me tell you what the Bible says. Now, I don't do this. This is right. what you should do. Yeah. Uh, right. That doesn't cut it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's got to be, here's what the Bible says. Here's how I'm trying to do this. Uh, how do you respond to that? Uh, right. That kind of approach. I, that's the impression I get here. And that's what I hear you saying in, the, in mm -hmm. your comment. Yeah. Um, this passage has a great deal to say about spiritual maturity sanctification about us growing uh, about us making sure that we are in tune with what's going on that the passage that i may know him uh, critical in this in this verse verse 10 um, understanding who he is that i get more knowledge of christ by experience every day every day those kind of things what are some roadblocks to spiritual maturity that we can address in this study you know, that, that sounds, I like that question. It sounds like a good discussion question. I might ask my group on that. <laughs> what are your road, but you know, what, what are your roadblocks um, to spiritual maturity? Anyway, but anyway, I'll try to, I'll try to answer that. Um, I, I, you know, I can think of several um, possible roadblocks. And I think one, maybe the main one from, to me is just the lack of desire. Just the lack of desire. Um, you know what Jesus say, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. They're the ones who will be filled. And, uh, you know, some just simply, honestly, they just don't have that hunger. They just don't have that hunger and thirst. Um, and, and those who don't have the hunger and thirst to, to grow in spiritual maturity, they won't. It's as simple as that. And I think another, another one, uh, it goes hand in hand with that. 
I think another would be the lack of discipline. When we neglect the spiritual disciplines, you know, when there's no real prayer life, um, no serious Bible study or no meaningful fellowship with other Christians beyond just, you know, on a superficial level on Sunday mornings, you know, when, when, when we lack the, the spiritual disciplines, uh, our growth is, is stunted. Uh, and those, those disciplines, they take effort, they take work. So a lazy Christian is, not, is going to fail in, in them and, and neglect them and, and not grow. So I think, that's a, you know, that's a funny term you think about, lazy Christian. I don't know that those two words should be used together. Should they, they, they shouldn't be. Um, so I, I think, you know, those two things, a lack of desire, a lack of discipline, and I think those really go hand in hand. And I think going back to a discussion we had just uh, what we were saying a minute ago, I think a lack of discipling, the lack of discipling uh, in discipleship uh, on the road to maturity, um, there is more caught than taught, is just what you were saying a, a minute ago. And while so formal instruction, that's, you know, that's valuable, but I think relationships are key in, in, in discipleship. So that, that reminds us as teachers, the importance of the role we play, not just to present content or mm -hmm. truth, but also to relate to the people who are sitting in that classroom yeah. or wherever we're having our Bible study group. Yeah, I think, I think we all need a Paul in our lives who will he'll say to us and not just say, but who will model for us, you know, this is what it looks like. This, this is what it looks like to study your Bible. You know, this, this is how I study my, this is how I do Bible study. This is what it looks like. This is what it looks like to pray. This is what it looks like to evangelize. This, this is how I do it. This is how you can do it. We all need that. You know, the old model for disciple making, you probably heard, many of you probably heard this. The old model is I do, you watch. I do, you help, you do, I help, you do, I watch, you do, someone else watches, you know, that, that old model, that's, that's what this, this is what this is, you know, talking about, um, that we, we need that kind of relational discipleship, uh, and without it, maturity just, it doesn't, it doesn't take place, spiritual maturity is not going to happen without relationships, Christian community. Do you think people value those? I don't know. I, I, there was a uh, research done just, just, just very recently in the last few weeks. It was published from Lifeway Research. And, and it's really kind of disturbing to, to, when you look at it. Uh, it says that two-thirds of churchgoers, like 65% of churchgoers, agree that they can walk with God without other believers. So in other almost words, two-thirds. Two-thirds. They, they, they don't value relationships at church enough to see those relationships as essential in their Christian walk and in their, their spiritual health. They don't see community as essential. That's alarming to me. That was, um, if you want to look that up, it's, it's Lifeway Research. You can find, I'm sure you can find it at lifewayresearch.com and it would have been published in April. So, you know, not too long ago. Yeah. So, you know, there's this, it's been said uh, that we come to faith as individuals, we grow in community. So <clears throat> we need each other. We need that relational kind of, of disciple 
uh, discipleship in order to grow. So, so what, you know, what are some of the roadblocks? I, I just think those are some, you know, there's, there's no desire, there's no discipline, there's no discipling going on. But to me, those would be the, my top three. So you, the, the quote that you said, we come as individuals, but we grow in community. Yeah, we come to faith as individuals, we grow in community. And I, I didn't, that, that's not original with me. Yeah. I've, I've heard that, yeah. That's an important thing for us to keep in mind when we think about these roadblocks. So your roadblocks were no hunger, no discipline, no discipling, and a subset of that discipling is community with other believers. Yeah. Um, it, and that community helps not just the person who is needing to grow, but the person who is actively growing because that keeps them accountable too. Yeah. One right. of the things I discovered is the best way to stay a leader is to share it with other people. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So we all, we all need, uh, we all need a Paul in our lives, but we also all need a Timothy as well. Mm. You know, so it's, it's, it's coming in and, and, and flowing out um, to others. Yeah, that's, that's just a part of spiritual health, spiritual growth. One of the ideas that's uh, stuck out to me that is included in the options in the leader guide is the art idea. Uh, and the idea is for us to provide paper and pencils to the group and then invite them to review Philippians 3, 8 through 21 and create an illustration that depicts what Paul is trying to explain here. Uh, and a variation would be to, to hand out paper at the beginning of the group time uh, and allow them to illustrate multiple things throughout the lesson, uh, throughout the session. Uh, they could, you could do it by each one of these points, uh, however you want to do it. And it doesn't have to be an elaborate illustration. It could be just drawing symbols, um, memory cues, those kinds of things. And then at the end, asking folks to share what they have illustrated. Uh, I know that some may see that, oh, that's childish, but I think you'll be surprised what your group may develop, what your group may do, and it will engage them in a completely different way than what they may have normally been a part of the Bible study group. They could even do that in, the, in their personal study guide or the daily discipleship guide, drawing symbols by each section uh, in the margin in either one of those resources as you work through the passage and have everybody share those things as a way to summarize this study. Mike, any other key thoughts, key ideas you would share about Philippians 3, 8 through 21? No, I think not. I appreciate uh, and, and have enjoyed um, this discussion. I appreciate you asking me. Good. Uh, we want to thank you all for listening to us today. If you have comments or questions, you're welcome to send me an email at Dwayne McCrary at lifeway.com that's d-w-a-y-n-e dot m-c-c-r-a-r-y at lifeway.com and I'll do my best to answer your question or if I don't know the answer I'll find the person who does know the answer and connect you with them. Next week we'll be looking at Philippians 4 1 through 9 the main idea there is we have joy through peace I hope you join us as we examine that passage next week.